Welcome to Lompoc Foursquare Church's podcast. Enjoy the message. Good morning, guys. How you doing? Oh, it is a it is a good Sunday to be together. The Bible has got a lot of different words that it uses to describe a community of faith, uh, people who follow Christ together, uh, and they're great. There's there's uh, calls us a body calls us a temple, calls us a priesthood, calls us a church. But my personal favorite word to describe a community of faith in the Bible is family. And the reason I like the word family probably more than any of the others is family leaves room for a certain level of dysfunction. It says we don't all have to be all the way okay and we can still belong. I mean, let's be honest, every family has got a crazy Uncle John and a weird Aunt Enda. Am I right? If you're saying no, it's probably you. We'll, we'll pray for you when we're done. Every family has got somebody that's just like, I'm not sure what's coming out of his mouth today. My Uncle John, um, they live in Seattle. We would have these Christmas family gatherings. It's about the only time I would see him during the year. And I distinctly remember being in the kitchen with him. Everybody else is in the other room. And, and my Uncle John looks at me now. Keep in mind, I'm married with two children, and I'm a full-time pastor. And my Uncle John says, you know, John, uh, I think there are a lot of career opportunities and room for advancement for you in the Catholic Church. Uh, Okay, he goes, yeah, I mean, really, there's like a a dearth, a deficiency of priests, and you're a great communicator, you love the Bible. I think you could really climb the ladder in the Catholic Church as a priest. And I'm like... Uncle John, do you remember my wife and kids? Like that, that doesn't work. But in, in his Uncle Johnness, he just thought he was, he was being helpful. And even though Uncle John and I didn't see everything completely eye to eye, uh, we made room for each other. You don't have to be perfect to belong to a family. You just need to be a part of a group who will appreciate you the way you are and do the same for others. Now, there are a number of different ways that you can join a family, right? Uh, You can be adopted in, uh, you can be born in, or you can marry in. And I don't know a whole lot about adoption. I haven't experienced it firsthand, Uh, but I have been born uh, and I have been married. And I've actually had kids as well. And one of the things that I've learned is whether you come in through birth or marriage, it could create just a little bit of discomfort. There's some challenges as you, as you try to figure out how are we really going to fit together. That's, that's why we're talking about this new series, Family Matters. Uh, we're going to talk about how we fit together. What do we do when, when my family of origin is a little different than your or, family of origin? Or I see things a little bit differently than you do. How do, I, how do I come along and how do I feel like I fit? Now, I've got two kids, uh, Tyler, uh, leading worship with his mom this morning. He's the oldest. He's almost 21. And then Kaylee is two years younger than he is. Now, even though Tyler was the perfect child and we knew that there was no way we could ever have a child anywhere near as exceptional as he is, uh, Wendy and I decided we wanted more kids. So we were going to try for a girl. And so we told Tyler, hey, you know, we're, we're going we're to have another baby. Our family's going to grow. You're going to be a big brother. And lo and behold, Wendy gets pregnant. We get further along. We realize it's going to be a girl. And so we're prepping Tyler that our family's going to change. There's going to be another family member. Unbeknownst to us, Tyler's not feeling it. So we, we get to the hospital, and we send him over to, to spend the night with our friends, and 
and we're, we're excited about our growing family, and Kaylee is born, and, and, and so we call our friends and go, hey, bring, bring Tyler over. We want him to meet his sister. And we're anticipating this beautiful moment. Wendy is in the bed, and she's holding Kaylee, and they text us like, hey, we're here. So I go out in the hallway, and I see my two friends walking down the hall, and Tyler trailing like five feet behind them, not moving very quickly. And I'm like, Tyler, Tyler, come meet your sister. To which Tyler responds, I don't want a sister. Little too late for that, bud, because we're kind of pot committed. So, um, so then now I'm trying to get him to come in, come in and meet her, come in and meet her, and, and, and he just doesn't want to come in. Finally, I get him to walk in the door. And he's got this doll. It's about 18 inches tall. He's maybe two, two and a quarter, almost two and a half. And, and he walks in the door, and he's got this doll by the ankle. I know you really carry a baby. And he walks in, turns the corner, sees Wendy and Kaylee in the bed, and starts slamming the doll's head into the ground. Bam, bam. We knew immediately. He was feeling a little bit challenged about the changing dynamic of our family. And he wasn't old enough to communicate things like, I'm wondering if there's going to be a place for me. He's probably wondering, am I still going to be loved? Am I still going to be accepted? Are you going to pay attention to me? Which actually, as you think about it, may be some of the same questions that you carry with you when you came to LFC for the first time. You, you may actually be sitting here this morning going, I wonder if there is a place for me here. I wonder if I will belong. And that's what we're talking about this morning. Now, I married into a different family. And uh, I don't know if you've experienced marriage. Uh, it may just be me. But I found that the family of origin I married into was a little different than my own. And that created a couple of moments where I didn't see things exactly eye to eye with the other people in the room. Anybody else? <laughs> Why are the men saying amen? That's like, fellas, enjoy the long walk home by yourself as your wife takes the car. So I start dating Wendy. You know, we're kids. We're like 22 and 19. And, uh, and, and so I go over to her house one Christmas. And I remember walking up the stairs and coming to the landing and turning to the right and seeing this absolute abomination, um, also known as a fake Christmas tree. Now, now, in the Pacific Northwest, you distinctly fall into one of two camps, real Christmas tree or fake Christmas tree. You don't even call it, if you're in the real tree category, you don't even call it an artificial tree. You call it a fake tree. Like, I've been cutting my trees down for the last 20 years. Last year, I went to Home Depot. Weird experience, another story. So I walk up, and I'm like, that's a fake tree. And then as I look, colored lights start blinking on and off. I'm like, who in their right mind would have a fake tree, put colored lights on them, and let them blink? That's not how this is done. It is a real tree. It is white lights, and they stay on all the time. I don't know what is going on in this household, but something is horribly horribly wrong. Huge surprise to me, my wife doesn't agree with me that her parents have been doing it wrong for the last 20 years. So I, I kind of take a deep breath. I'm trying to get my head around this whole colored, blinking, fake tree thing. I walk into the bathroom, and for the love of all that's holy, holy the toilet paper goes over the roll when we all know it should go under the roll. I have landed among barbarians. I don't know what is happening. And when I go outside to express my obvious and clear displeasure, 
I run into her father. Her father is half my size. I don't know if you have ever had the privilege of marrying into a Marine Corps family. If you haven't and you intend to, culture shock. I start expressing my disfavor with how some things are working. He reaches into his back pocket, pulls out about a four-inch comb, looks at me and goes, you just need to know, I can kill you with this. And he meant it. He's in his mid-70s, and from time to time, he will still reach for that comb. How was this ever going to work? Two completely different ways of seeing the world. And yet, I loved Wendy. And I knew that we were supposed to be together. How are we going to come to a place of compromise? Well, we compromised on a real tree with white lights. Thank you, Wendy. And we compromised on continuing to fight over the toilet paper roll. That was our compromise. And we found common ground in the love that we have for each other. Jesus did the same thing. He collected a really, really diverse group of people and tried to get them to find common ground. When you think about the first 12 disciples and who they were, you got, you got some fishermen, you got a couple of brothers with serious anger issues, you have a Roman collaborator, you have a religious terrorist, you have a thief, and a couple other guys. Think about how much fun Sunday dinner was for these guys. You stick Matthew the tax collector next to Simon the zealot and go, talk. And yet somehow, Jesus was able to build out of them a thriving, healthy, collaborative, and loving community formed them into a family and said, guys, the way you treat each other, the way you respond to each other, the love you have for each other is going to be a sign to others that you belong to me. Now, only God could make something like that happen. And so we've, we're starting this series called Family Matters, because if it was important to Jesus, it should probably be important to us as well. And I want to show you this morning that the idea of us being family really matters to God. And that's why family matters. But then we'll also talk about some, some family matters. Like, how do we approach each other if we should ever come to a place where we see things differently? You were for artificial trees. I am for real trees. How will we ever come to agreement? Well, the Bible has some things to teach us about that. So over the, the rest of the time we have together, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you God's plan. Uh, I'm going to show you where God's plan went a little bit sideways. And then we'll walk through a little bit of the book of Ephesians where Paul goes, here's how you start walking this stuff out. Here's the first thing I want you to know. Building a community of faith into something called a family is God's plan. You and I, we are designed for relationship. It is in our DNA. It is how God made us. He made us to relate to him, but he also made us to be in sustained and healthy and dynamic relationship with one another. And he calls that one another family. The psalmist in Psalm 68 says this. He's talking about God. He says, a father to the fatherless and a defender of the widows is God in his holy dwelling. God sets the lonely in what? In what? Remember a couple minutes ago I said you get to talk to me today? God sets the lonely in, in families. He leads forth the prisoners with singing, but the rebellious live in a sun-scorched land. So he's, there's a dichotomy here. There's those in the family and those outside of a family. The word lonely is, is better translated probably as solitary or isolated. So God takes 
isolated people, takes individuals, those who are relationally separated, and he puts them in a family. And the inference is that they thrive there because he goes on to say the rebellious or those living outside of God's intent, living outside of God's design, they are really uncomfortable. That's what the sun-scorched land means, that, that they are finding themselves in a hot and arid and not refreshing place. It's, it's God's intent that we not operate independently because we're designed for a relationship. And here's the thing. God doesn't design us for a relationship because he's mad at us. God designs us for a relationship because it's good. It's a part of how he created us to be. I, I want to show you. I, let me just talk to you really quickly about the opening uh, passages of the book of Genesis. This is the creation story. And the story of God, it just, it's one of my favorite stories because it's just so alive, so dynamic. He's painting this picture. It's a poem as it's actually written in Hebrew. And so you, you have the opening scene where the earth is dark and it's formless and, and the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters. There's nothing. It's chaos. And God speaks. And on day one, he creates light, it says, and he divides light from the darkness, he calls the light day, and he calls the dark, well done, congratulations, and he says it's good. He makes that statement. This is good. Then day two, it says he separates the waters above from the waters below, and he calls the expanse sky. And he goes to day three. The day three, he gathers all the waters below in one place, dry land appears, and he calls the dry land, land, yep, that was an easy one, and he calls the seas, Yes, you're doing great. Uh, He creates grass, and it says plants and fruit-bearing trees, and again, he makes a statement. God says it's good. Day four, puts lights in the sky, sun, moon, stars, and he calls it good. It's good every time, guys. So it's just like if, if, if you're insecure, like he calls it okay, no, no, it's always good. Day five, living creatures are created. He put, says he puts living creatures in the sea. Birds are created, and he calls it, yeah, so he's on the good train. Day six, the land produces living creatures. He creates Adam, and he places him in the Garden of Eden, and he says, you know what? He doesn't. Sorry, I set you up for that one. So, so the Hebrews would be looking for this good, 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 because anytime there's repetition, God is really emphasizing something. So it's good, it's good, it's good. He creates Adam. He puts him in the garden, this beautiful, sinless, perfect environment. And he says, you know, it's not good that he's by himself. Good, 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 not good. It's not good, he says, for man to be alone. And he says, he needs a helpmate. I'm going to create a helpmate for him. Now, when, when I was young and dumb and, and getting ready to get married, and I read that verse, I'm like, sweet, I'm getting married, I'm getting a helper. Um, my meals are going to get cooked. My clothes are going to get clean. This is amazing. Fellas, if you're considering marriage, you just need to know that is not what that word means. Matter of fact, the the Hebrew word for helpmate is the Hebrew word azar. And the meaning is someone who who complements and completes the other person, helps them to become the best version of themselves. As a matter of fact, there are four people referred to as azar or helpmate in Scripture. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit and Eve. So ladies, thank you. You are an exceptional company. So he creates Eve. He brings them together in the garden. And once they're together, once they're in relationship, he goes, that is very good. 
So now we have the first family, and it's awesome until it isn't. Because immediately after having the first family, we have the first family conflict. You know the story. God had told them that they had access to everything in the garden except this one thing, and Adam and Eve get lied to by the serpent. And they're like, well, we're going to go do that one thing, even though God said not to. And so now we have the first family conflict. We have Adam abdicating his responsibility. We, we have blame shifting. We have finger pointing. We have isolating behavior. Anybody ever been in that kind of a fight? That's exactly what's happening. So what we see today in relational conflict, sees, we see right there. And the reason is because sin entered the picture, and sin ruptures relationship. It, it brings a tearing, brings a severing. And first, it, it, it ruptured their relationship with God. Scripture says that, that once they sin, they eat of the fruit, they realize they're naked, they're ashamed, and they hide. Why are they hiding? Well, they're hiding from God. Why are they hiding from God? Because God would walk with them every day because they were designed for a relationship with God. So as soon as sin enters in, there's a distance, there's a withdrawing first from God. But it also ruptures the relationship with the two of them. Genesis 3.16, God steps in, he talks to the serpent, here he talks to Eve, and then he's going to talk to Adam. To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pain in childbearing. With pain, you will give birth to children. Then he makes this statement. He says, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Now, fellas, I'm sorry. When he says your desire will be for your husband, it does not mean every time you walk by, she's going to go hubba hubba. Okay? That's not what that word desire means. That word desire has to do with, with the desire to master or, or control someone. In chapter 4, uh, God will say to Cain, sin is crouching at your door and it desires to master you. So what God is saying is there is entering into the relationship between Adam and Eve a desire for position and power that did not exist in God's original plan. That was not present before the advent of sin. So she is now, he, God is now saying, Adam is going to try and take charge, and you're going to want to take charge. And this unity that you had in the garden, this, this ability to work and to function together, as a consequence of sin, not God's design, this is now going to flavor your relationship. In your fallen state, you are now going to have to exert yourself to work things out in a relational context. You tracking with me so far? Okay. It was not God's. Up until this point, Adam and Eve were co-stewards of God's creation. They collaboratively led and cared for everything that God created. That is how God designed it. And what you see in the New Testament, in Paul's writing in Ephesus, is with the advent, with the arrival of the new covenant, God, through an act of new creation, makes us new from the inside out so that we can begin to live relationally, even as husband and wife, according to our design. So in Ephesians 5, where it starts talking about how men treat women and women treat men, we have to remember that earlier in that same chapter, Paul says to both men and women, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So God's intent, God's design, is that this power struggle no longer takes place, but men and women are ministering equally 
together, leading their families equally together. But whenever we, we feel threatened or posture ourselves to assume a measure of control in a relationship, it will fracture and harm that relationship. How do I know? Let me tell you. Wendy and I are standing in the kitchen, and I've got something that I really want us to do as a family. I don't remember what it is. Not really important to the story, but clearly I felt passionately about this. Now, yeah, I'm sure she does know, Bill. Thank you. Uh, no more editorializing, editorializing comments from the peanut gallery. God gave me Wendy to keep me from going broke and to keep me out of jail. I mean, she's just, I'm the accelerator. I'm like, let's go, go, go. It's going to be awesome. And she's like, could we just maybe think and pray about this? So she has always been the one to kind of slow down my impetuous behavior. So whatever this thing was, I really wanted to do it. And we're arguing in the kitchen. And Wendy has a fairly strong conviction, so she's not backing down. But I am feeling challenged, and I'm feeling probably a bit insecure. So as it begins to escalate, I look at my wife and I say, fine. You tell me when it's my turn to be the man. Yeah. 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 You know when something goes out of your mouth and you wish there was like that reset button that could just give you 10 seconds of your life back? Like I would never. We're still married. We're doing good. I have never said that again, but I do get a little sweaty every time I tell that story. Just like, oh, God, how did I? How did I do that? That was not a healthy relationship dynamic. That was an insecure person who was unable to talk about his feelings trying to get his own way. God wants us to work together in unity and in collaboration and not say really stupid things. I'm good at really stupid things. But he throws us together in this relationship. We're still a little bit broken. So what are we going to do about it? Like, God, God designed us for a relationship. We need to be in relationship. We're broken. So what's the plan? Here's what we need to remember. God never went back and said, yep, because of sin, I've changed my mind. He, he didn't look at Eve and go, I'm going to need that rib back for Adam because this just isn't working. I want you guys to live in isolation for the rest of your lives. Sin did not change the design. It just made it harder to live into that design. It made its application more difficult because it pressed us toward isolation and individualism. So now we have to work for unity, but we're still designed for relationship. That's why in that Psalm 68 passage, it says God sets the lonely in families. This is something that God intends for us, and it's something that God makes possible. It's his design, his plan, his goal to reverse the curse that sin did. Because we are relationally corrupted through sin, God has to do the work. But he wants to restore us back to his original design because that's where we'll best thrive. With me so far? Like, this is the plan? This is how the plan went sideways? So Paul, in the book of Ephesians, is writing to a group of people who were living out the plan going sideways. Um, the city of Ephesus was the, city, uh, was the center of Greek and Roman thought and religious practices. They were really proud of themselves. And when you see the architecture, you understand why they were really proud of themselves. You would find a temple to just about every deity in the Roman Empire in Ephesus. They were engineers. They were mathematicians. They were philosophers. They were scholars. 
And Paul spent two years there as a missionary evangelist, and he built a church. And because this was a Gentile city, he built a primarily Gentile church. Now, because of their high opinion of themselves, uh, they had come to the conclusion that Gentile Christians were actually superior to Jewish Christians because the Jews were the ones that missed the boat, crucified Jesus, and so Paul had come to the Gentiles. Paul steps into this conversation in his letter of Ephesians and goes, guys, slow your roll. Uh, You're getting a little ahead of yourselves, and you are actually preaching disunity when Jesus came to preach unity. So the book is an explanation of how and why God made us one family. We'll pick it up in chapter 2. So Paul is writing primarily to Gentiles, and he says, Remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision. So basically what he's saying is, you're Gentiles. The Jews are the ones that call themselves the circumcision. And remember that they used to call you names. So calling them uncircumcised was not like a, hey, you're awesome. It's these pagan, far-from-God people. He says, remember that at that time, you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenant of the promise. You were without hope and without God in the world. What time is he referring to? He tells us in verse 1, he's, he's referring to the time where you were dead in your transgressions and in your sins. So what he is saying is prior to being born again, you were excluded not simply from the saving knowledge of Jesus, but you were, you were excluded from relationship with the people of God. That's who Israel had been up to that point. They were the people of God. So while you guys are getting all high and mighty and having the you're the best rally, remember that before you met Christ, you were isolated and alone. You were not only separated from Christ, but from relationship with his people. He goes on in verse 13 and says, but something changed. He says, now in Christ, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. What have they been brought near to? Well, he's talking about relational conflict. They've been brought near to the family of God, the community of believers, the commonwealth of Israel, because he's talking to Gentiles about their relationship to Jewish Christians. So what he's saying is, though at one point in time you saw the world very differently, you behaved very differently, and you did not regard each other with anything other than animosity, you were designed for a relationship, and so God is bringing you back together. And then in verse 14, he starts talking about how. Speaking of Jesus, he says, he himself is our peace. He has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. What God did was he took the list of everything that made you different and separate, and he tore it in half. And he goes on to explain why. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of two, thus making peace, and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. Stay with me. I know this is a lot of scripture, but it's really important to understand both the why and the how. What is Paul saying? Paul is saying you were incredibly different people, and yet somehow, miraculously, Jesus didn't just deal with your sin at the cross. He dealt with your inability to connect to people in a healthy community. Jesus made peace between us and the Father, for which we say, thank you, Jesus, but also between each other. And it says he destroyed the dividing wall of hostility. 
he put it to death, made one out of two. What does that mean? He made one out of two. Well, the Gentiles were still Gentiles, and the Jews were still Jews. But the thing that was going to define them from this point on, the primary thing that identified them was not their ethnicity, though their ethnicity was not in any way diminished. All of their cultural distinctives were still valued, were still important, would bring rich and diverse flavor to the body of Christ. But that was no longer going to be the primary way that they identified themselves. The primary way they identified themselves from this moment on is that they are Christ followers. You have been saved by grace, saved by faith, and you have been made one family. When I married Wendy, we were still very different. And yet we became one, Scripture says, because we entered into covenant. And so now, very different people with distinct ways of seeing the world enter into the new covenant with Christ and become one. Not in theory, but in actuality and in spirit. Paul goes on, verse 19. Consequently, meaning as a result, you are no longer foreigners and aliens but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. When we're born again, we're not just forgiven. We become part of a unit that God calls a family. If we experience one but resist the other, if we receive forgiveness, receive grace, and enter into relationship with God the Father, but don't enter in to a dynamic relationship with the other people of God, It leaves us incomplete. We'll find ourselves in the good column of Genesis, but outside of the very good. We cannot live out our design as Christ followers in isolation or as individuals. John, are you saying I somehow need to lose my sense of individualism and identity and just kind of somehow get morphed into the collective? No. No, Scripture is very clear that there will be a point in time where every nation, tribe, and tongue worships before the throne. That we, God knows and understands and created us with unique cultural distinctives and experiences, and they are equally valuable. They are God-breathed. But at some point, we have to decide that we are going to walk in unity with the larger body of Christ, or we will not become who we have been designed to be. Now, You might look around. Take a look around the room. Yeah. And you may think, wouldn't pick them for my family. If you think that, that's okay. They probably wouldn't pick you either. But the fact of the matter is God did. And whether you feel similar or dissimilar to those around you, Scripture says God has made us one. And hear me. You can't un-one what God has made one. You can choose to isolate yourself, but you're still part of that same body because this is something God did by his spirit. You are still part of the family of God. And the challenge is, if any of us choose not to engage as a family member, we diminish the rest of the family. Let me show you how, what I mean, and I'll, I'll close with this. Verse 22, Paul goes on and says, in him, in Jesus... You too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. You are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. What does that mean? It means this family relationship 
becomes a place where God's presence lives. God, the Holy Spirit, inhabits both a person and a people. Let me tell you, say that again. God's Spirit inhabits a person. When I'm born again, he dwells within me. But this passage tells me that God also inhabits uniquely a people. Old Testament says how, how good it is when men, when brothers dwell together in unity. And it goes on to say it's like the oil that drips from Aaron's beard. That is an anointing oil. There is something that happens when God's people engage with God together as a family that actually invites the presence of God to do something unique and distinct that it doesn't do any other way, which is our goal. This is, this is why I so value family. This is, this is what I want, that when we gather or, or whenever we're present in the community, when we're, when we're throwing candy at kids for the block party, because we are there together as family, the Spirit of God is present as well. And so people are drawn to Jesus by the love and the unity that they see here. This is our design. This is what I want to spend a couple of weeks talking about. I've been married for almost 25 years. My kids, yeah, woo, sometimes. Sometimes like, whoa. I've been, you know, my, my kids are... are almost 19 and almost 21. I've had a lot of time to work out family dynamics, family conflict, family conversations, and see the benefits of a super healthy family. My perspective, a super healthy family is family that talks about what's working, what's not working, and what we're hoping for for the future. And so I just want to spend the next couple of weeks going, hey, if anything ever arises like it does in every single family, how do we, how do we address it as Christ followers? How do, we, how do we deal with anger? How do we deal with frustration? How do we deal with disagreement? Not because I think it's an issue here, but because these are the kinds of things that a healthy family talks about. But it's all predicated on a commitment, on a willingness to engage one another on a family level. 2005, Hurricane Katrina came roaring through the city of New Orleans. The city of New Orleans is an anomaly. The city actually exists below sea level. And because they wanted to reclaim and use that land below sea level, they built a series of levees and canals to keep the water back. They wanted to dry out the land so they could build on it. When Hurricane Katrina hit, it broke the levees, and the water came flooding in again. It returned to its natural state. It, it returned to what it was designed for originally, with tragic consequences. It's an imperfect illustration. But here's what I, I heard the Lord just kind of challenging me on over the last few days. It's the idea of levees to hold the water back. I felt like the Lord was asking me, John, where have you built relational levees? Just keeping people at a distance. And the reason that's so important is because those relational levees leave dry, leave, leave things dry and barren. And, and well, that's what that first passage says happens to people who are living outside of God's plan and design. And so I don't want that. And here's what I know about me. In some of my moments of greatest need, where I really need to be connected to other men in particular, 
because I'm discouraged or I'm afraid or I'm challenged. I isolate. Step back, keep people at a distance. And, and I heard, I just felt like the Lord was saying, John, are you, are you in a place where you're willing to deal with that relational levy? Well, when the Lord's that direct, I kind of have to say, yes. So this is the homework that I have for you for this week. I simply want you to ask the Lord if there is any place in the context of a local church community where you have built relational levies to keep people at a distance. You don't have to do anything about it. I mean, we're not going to have like a, you're not going to come in next week and it's not going to be a big circle, you know, beat the drum past the rain stick. We're not, we're not doing that. But I do believe the Holy Spirit just wants to put his finger on some things that can help us be a healthier, more dynamic, more diverse, more loving community. And he wants to do it because it's good for us. Is it good for him too and his work in a community? Yeah. But God so loves us that he wants what's best for us. So I just want to encourage you over the next couple of days, take five minutes, maybe driving into work in the morning and go, Lord, are there places where I am building relational levies? And if you identify something, just write it down. Okay. We'll probably pray about that. We're going to believe God to bring breakthrough in that area. That's all you got to do. Make sense? Would you stand with me? I want to pray for you and I want to pray for me. You know, two, two, two and a half years ago, I see. Take the hand of the person next to you. We're respecting personal space a little bit differently these days. So, if you're comfortable, would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Imagine yourself taking the hands of the person next to you, just connected and unified. Lord Jesus, we're your kids. You've placed us in a family for which we are so grateful. Lord, even in the context of a family, I know that there can be people who feel very much alone. They can come and listen and worship, give, even serve, but go home at the end of the day feeling like no one saw them. Jesus, I ask that you would help us to begin to break down the walls that would divide and keep us in isolation. The levees that we've built that hold back not simply relationship, but the free-flowing move of your Spirit. We want to be a people, not just a person, in whom God's presence lives. And Lord, my prayer for us is that we would be a people where no one ever feels that they have to walk through life alone, that they don't have to face challenge nor victory by themselves, but that you have placed them in a family of people who will care for and contend for them. God, would you join our hearts together in a way that only you can do. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. We hope you enjoyed today's message. Please visit us at mylfc.com for more information about our church. Thank you so much for listening.